you're tuned to North Fork Works, and I'm Hazel Kahn. Today, my guest is somebody I've spoken to before, but never seen in person. Today, I'm happy to be talking across the, the table to you, Amy. Amy Falk, Southhold Town historian. Also, these other towns, is that all one job? or Actually, what I do is I am the manager of collections for two different historical societies the Oyster Ponds Historical Society, and the Southhold Historical Museum. And I'm also the town historian for Southhold. Mm -hmm. uh, there are three separate jobs. It's very difficult for a historian to get one full-time job, particularly since if you're outside of New York City. Mm. It can be very difficult to get a one full-time job. So I make do with three jobs. Different email addresses, different telephones, different offices. So every once in a while, I'll end up in the wrong place. And they'll say, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be over there. And I'll hop in well, the car and run to the next place. The last time we spoke on North Fork Works was as a celebration of Black History Month mm -hmm. on WPKN. You were then involved and you talked about an earlier stage of the work being done by the North Fork Project. Yes. I don't know if the work is finished yet or if it's never done, but if you can talk about that in a minute. But you're a member of, of the project. I know that. There are a couple yep. of other people on it. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I want to have you talk about is that last month the Suffolk Times headlined you with the words, Amy Falk moves town history in a new direction, which I thought must be a very gratifying statement no. for a historian. <laughs> no. <laughs> I looked at that and I said, oh my God, I thought it was going to be like a page 18 article. Why did they put it on the front? So before we go on actually to talk about that, go back to the, the North Fork Project Group's work. Mm -hmm. the history of slavery on the North Fork. Yeah. That, talk about that, what the work is and where it stands today, whether your work is done or whether that's not a way to think about it. Okay. The North Fork Project is a group of historians and other interested people, and we are looking for the names and evidence of uh, people who were enslaved on the North Fork who have, for the most part, been completely forgotten. Uh, when I started at the town, I only knew of three people who were enslaved. And uh, just before the pandemic, Steve Wick, who was the newspaper editor at the Suffolk Times, came to me and said, we have to do work on this. And I was just like, oh, no, no. And he's like, yes, we have to do work on this. And he kept picking at me until I said, okay, Why fine. Why didn't you want to? At that point in time, we're starting the Black Lives Matter movement and... There are people, particularly with various minorities, who feel that their history should be told by them mm. and not told by others. So you, you see that a mm. lot mm -hmm. with um, Indian nations. They don't want to have people of European descent telling anyone about their history. They search themselves. Yeah, and it's linked, I suppose, associated with cultural appropriation and yeah, stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's really mixed in, and I didn't want to upset the apple cart that way. Mm. So Steve actually is the, the motivating force, and he put together myself, Richard Wines, who's an independent historian in Riverhead, and Sandy Brewster Walker, who does all different kinds of histories of enslaved people and and people of African descent and Indian nations. She, she does all that kind of history. We hired an intern to help us try and figure out the technicalities of doing the computer stuff. We just started looking at primary sources, the original records, and finding any kind of mentions in anything from 
deeds to wills to town records to books written about the time periods any kind of primary and secondary source and these names just start floating up people who were enslaved people who were their enslavers where did they live we knew people of european descent out here and we knew where they lived so we could put together a history. Mm. In some cases, we're even able to put together little genealogies. Our interest really is what's happening on the North Fork. So that's really my interest as a town historian of what happens in our area. So the, the, my question, and, and here I'm, it's my own ignorance, is slavery ended? So when does the family stop thinking of itself? You know, when oh, do they have their own... That's such a psychologist you, question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's it, though, isn't it? I mean, when do they take over their own story? I don't know. My family was never enslaved, so I can't tell you the psychological parts of that. What I can tell you is the historical cut-and-dried facts, right? July 4th, 1827, New York State outlaws slavery, but they do leave a couple of loopholes that persist down to the 1840s. Like, if you were an out-of-state resident, and you wanted to bring your enslaved person into the state, you could have them here for six months before New York State would declare them to be free. If you had an enslaved person here in 1827 or shortly thereafter, and you wanted to make sure that your investment continued and you sold them to another state where a person could continue to be enslaved, people did that too. Horrible, terrible, whatever you know, verb you want to put on it. But that also happened. By the time we make it to the mid-1840s, New York State had had enough. They were having a hard enough time trying to enforce all these, you know, if then, if not, you know, you did what, they did not. So they just said, all right, if the person is here on our ground, they're free. But that doesn't stop people from outside the state kidnapping the free African descent people and then taking them down south. So we see things like Simon Northrup where somebody made a great movie about that, kidnapping him from upstate New York and taking him down south. So what is the end result now of the project? Is it, well, is it done? I don't think it's ever going to truly be done. Is there a book we, or a, a report or any? We have a lecture that the four of us will get together sporadically and do with what our results are, because I really think it's the people of the North Fork are interested in it. Are they? Is it curiosity? Is it guilt? Is it a feeling of historical continuity? I mean, how do they feel about this information? I think it's all of it. One of the things we decided to do in our, our lecture when we first talk about it, we tell people we're not pointing fingers, we're not trying to blame anyone because many of the enslaving families are still here. The people who were enslaved really have all left. We have not found any descendants still in this area. Um, we haven't found any of the descendants at all. We're, we're looking. If you were enslaved, generally you don't have a last name. So in some cases, we have no last name to find some. Many enslaved people will take on the name of their enslaver. We have other families like um, uh, Kedar. Kedar took the name Derby, but he was enslaved by the Albertson family. But one of his children decided to change the family's name from Derby to Freeman. So everybody who came after that was named Freeman. So it's the Derby Freeman family now. Before our culture became so closely watched with all the different paperwork we fill out to identify who we are, 
people were a lot freer to say, you know, I've decided to change my name. I'm going to go from, you know, folk to Smith, you know, and they would just do it. And that makes life a lot harder for a historian trying to find people. Is there a time when there is no more story? I mean, that the story ends because slavery has ended, or they still have that history. So is there an end? I don't think there is an end. There is a tapering off for the historian in that we have found the majority of credible information that we can possibly find. So all the information that we have gained so far with the help of our intern is being turned into a database that can go on to some of all the national websites. Right. So enslaved.org, we've joined up with the group on the South Fork, which is in plain sight, because the cost of us doing our own websites, a lot. So we decided we'd, we would rather share our information with other people who have established places. So when people find out that their family was enslavers mm -hmm. here on the North Fork, mm -hmm. are there stories you can tell of, without mentioning names, but what, what happens? I mean, Some people who don't want to talk about it at all or say, no, that's not my family. Other people who have come to me to say, I found out my family is enslavers and I want to find out as much as possible about the people we enslaved so I can connect with them. Oh, really? Yeah. So what happens when they connect with them? What, what would go on? I don't know. I don't know. I have heard of some people, usually a mixture of, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry my family did this to you. And, you know, uh, just making that connection and, and mm. being, it's I guess, really an extended family yeah. to some extent. Maybe that's another project for somebody. Is that work being funded by anyone? Mm -mm. No. The only person who, who had a, a salary would be me. Everybody else is, is purely volunteer. And even I, you know, did stuff at home and on weekends and things like that. New York State required, around 1919, uh, Al Smith signed into law a requirement that all municipalities in New York State have a municipal historian. And we're there to mm. keep track of the histories of our municipality and answer questions. I think it's a great law, but every town, village, county, we even have a state historian. And we are there to answer questions, but we also are there to track the history. So looking into uh, the different histories of Southville Town is actually part of my job. And I, I do that in between answering people's questions about, I want to know more about the history of my house, or this is my family's genealogy, can you tell me anything else about this person? But one of the things that I had heard right as I started the job is the New York State Regents wanted schools to teach local history. One of my projects, because I get to set up my own projects as the, the historian, is I started researching and writing about the history of Southold. So looking at national events and what happened here in Southold. So during the American Revolution, we know the overall picture of the revolution. Well, what happened in Southold during the revolution? Civil War, what happened here? So for me, studying the enslaved people of Southhold is an automatic offshoot of this. So this is mm -hmm. definitely part of the history with a whole population of people that we didn't know existed. Right. There are forgotten people. So will we be hearing more about this project? I think it's, it's kind of winding down on what we found, and I think we've found the majority of what we are going to find. You know, there'll be little bits and pieces here and there that will pop up continually and people right. having questions, and we'll, we'll keep going with that. But I'm turning my attention to other things. For the last 
two years, I've started looking at the Southold Indians that were here. The article said that you suggested to Southold Town Board members other changes should be made in terms of how history is told in Southold Town. We have in the town of Southold a whole series of historic markers put up by mostly in the 50s and 60s. What, what is a historic marker? A historic marker is those metal signs you see on the side of the road that says site of the first schoolhouse in this location. They can be quite large or they can be smaller. In some cases they can be really tiny. It's a little tiny metal plaque that will say the Beckwith store 1870. But there are other markers who are larger, more like a roadside sign of early mills in South Hole Town. You know, uh, the Albertson Mill, the mill. Cloth mills? No, they're more grinding mills, you know, grist mills. Oh, okay. Uh, tidal mills, things like that. And the metal signs were put up by the historical societies and other private organizations, mostly in the 1950s and 60s when we were on the, the ramp up towards the bicentennial. At that time period, uh, we were very much celebrating the European version of everything, people of European descent, and other peoples, people of the Indian nations, people who were of African descent, of Asian descent. Their histories didn't really count mm. and weren't related. Amy Falk is talking about her work as Southall Town's historian. This is Norfolk Works and Hazel Kahn on WPKN Radio. The histories that if you were educated in America that you grew up on, the pilgrims and the Puritans, they came here and they fought the dastardly Indians, but nobody really talks about the Pequot Massacre or the Wampanoags or anything else, right? We have Custer who who opened the West and that dastardly, you know, Sioux tribe, you know, murdered him. Oh, my heavens, you know. But we're not looking at it from the Indian side of view, right? You know, that this crazy guy with long hair came here and he's trying to take over our land. They're freedom fighters trying to defend their own land. So we have this battle of cultures. We have a battle of supremacy. And we see some of that in today's culture. Even today, mm. we've still butting heads over whose history is important. So the sign. Uh, Steve Wick came to me, he said, Amy, what are you going to do about this sign with John Underhill on it? And I said, nothing. And he said, no, you have to do something about the sign. I said, I've been successfully ignoring it for the last six years. You know? So you knew about it and you didn't want to do anything because what was troublesome? Yes. Well, there's a lot of troublesome parts to this, right? So the signs themselves are $1,500 a piece. So if I'm going to replace the sign... I got a first cough up $1,500, and where mm. am I going to find that in my budget? That's like my entire budget for the year. There's a secondary issue that the town doesn't own any of these signs. First of all, nobody owns the sign. So, all right, I got nobody to turn to to say, you know, you need to fix this sign. The signs, when they stand on the side of the road, if they're between the sidewalk and the curb, are actually on state land. Mm. So now I got to get permission from the state in order to take a sign down and possibly make a new sign and put it up. Then I've got to get a grant. Let's backtrack a little bit more. My problem sign is John Underhill. John Underhill was born, um, nobody's too sure exactly the year he was born, but his descendants believe he was born 
in Holland. He married a woman from the Netherlands and they migrated here when he was recruited to help train the militia in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So he comes over here and part of his job as a mercenary is to do whatever military maneuvers the government wants him to do. We use the word on the sign in Southhold, renowned Indian fighter. That was the bad word then. That well, you... renowned is famous, you know, great guy, esteemed, illustrious. And I'm like, all right, I have a problem with the word. You know, I was talking to a direct descendant of John Underhill last week, and she said, I have a problem with the word Indian fighter. I said, I have a problem with the word renowned, but we could both have a problem. That's okay. You know, I don't object to having a sign that says site of John Underhill's house. But right now I'm listening to the people of South Hole and seeing what they want. I have some people who say, let's not get rid of John Underhill. And I have other people who are like, throw him out of town. Underhill himself was only in the town as an older man four or five years. He was an Indian fighter throughout Connecticut. He was a governor for a very short time, what later became New Hampshire. And he also worked for the Dutch and he was doing some Indian fighting with the Dutch as well. So he didn't do any Indian fighting for us. He's not one of our original settlers. He's not in our town government. His memory has lasted as a quote unquote famous guy, but didn't do anything for us. So are you saying just get rid of the sign altogether? I think we're going to rewrite the sign. The sign also talks about John Pekin's tavern, very early tavern that we know of that was at the same site. It's also where a very early version of our libraries were formed in like 1797. It's a really early library. So that's also in the same site. So we could rewrite the sign, make it smaller and say, you know, site of John Underhill, site of Pekin's Tavern, site of the first library. We could write the sign that just simply says Pekin's Tavern and the library and skip John Underhill completely. I said, you know, let's, let's see what we want to do. And yes. you get input from the town people? Whether I want it or not, yeah. I have certainly gotten input. <laughs> people who, who aren't even in the town have, have written me or called me and expressed both directions. Really? Yeah, yeah. And, and my standard thing is, you know, I don't mind having John Underhill up there per se, even though he didn't really do anything for us. And he wasn't here that long anyway. He wasn't really here that long anyway. But he was certainly here. So ultimately, it's going to be what the town board decides. And it's great that they're getting input, that people care enough to do that. It is nice that yeah. people care yeah. enough about history to do that. In the same article of Steve Wicks, he you also thought, I believe, that he should be at least added to by highlighting stories of two enslaved people. Ah, uh, yes. So those are two new signs. Well, yeah. I got permission in order to apply for a grant to get those signs. To two new ones then. Yeah, we don't have any any history posted anywhere of, of the enslaved, enslaved people, of, of anyone of African descent anywhere, any minority. You know, we don't have any signs to the, the Chinese population that was here, the Polish population that was here, anything except the very early histories. 
So North Fork Project should have some sort of acknowledgement of mm. these people living here as well. Another thing that was mentioned was Korchog, ah. that we've been using the wrong name all along. The Southhold Indians who lived in our area are from the Algonquin Nation, and we have always called them the Korchog. But it turns out in the Algonquin language, Korchog means the principal place. It's not a people's name, oh, it's, it's a, a land name. Oh. And for over 300 years, I've been calling them the Korchog. But Downs Preserve, that's actually Korchog. That neck, which has an Indian fort on it by the Indians, was referred to as Korchog. And the name spread to include Beautiful. everything north of there to become Kachog. Yeah. And we've always referred to the people as interchangeably Korchog. Kachog. For over 300 years, we've been calling them by the name of a place when they self-identified themselves as being a Manasak. How do you undo that? You write about it, you talk about it, and you hope people And you have listen. to make some signs somewhere, maybe. That would be nice, too. One of the politically correct... One of the things that has become popular is acknowledging the people who owned the land before the Europeans came here. And in some communities, you will see you are entering the land of the Amanasuk or the, the Iroquois or mm -hmm. whatever else. It would be nice if I could talk the town into putting a little thing saying that this was the land of the Amanasuk. And where would you put it? Well, the Dons town borders, you know, where it says entering South Old Town, you know, and underneath it may be the land of the Amanasuk. Can people like donate that. these money for these things? I don't know. I haven't asked anybody for money of it. But maybe I can get somebody to give money I mean, for how it. Much, how much are we talking about? I don't think it would cost that much. No, I mean, it's whose nose would be out of joint if you did such a thing? There's a lot of people who don't. As, and you see it as a historian. I certainly see you it document as a historian. That. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested in sort of historian, let's call it ethics. The whole idea of rewriting history is hugely interesting. By removing the sign or changing the wording on the Underhill sign, you're rewriting history. I don't know if I'm rewriting history so much as removing some of the judgments that were made in the past. I think what I'm trying to do is provide us with a more well-balanced viewpoint of what our history accurate. is. You're, you're, more it's accurate. accurate less one-sided. Mm. What I wrote here is the question was rewriting history. I wrote these my words can mean erasing and we see a lot of that. Some people call it that, yeah. So, yeah. you yeah. know. Mm -hmm. Rewriting or actually inserting another story instead. Mm. Mm. And as a historian, I'm just wondering what those things mean to you. How do I say this? I don't think I'm erasing. I don't think that I am replacing the story. I think I am filling it out. Mm. I am expanding it. In the light of evidence that's either come up or that you yourself have gone after and found. Yes, particularly in the 1930s, there was a movement among historians and amateur historians to make their history, their personal history and the history of where they lived preeminent. This is where we start to see all the George Washington slept here kind of thing. We, we all wanted to have some sort of touch of fame and fortune and famous people came here. Whether they really mm. did or not is a whole nother story. What I'm looking at and trying to 
yeah, I'm trying to erase to some extent is the inaccuracy, the stories versus what the real history is. So this is partially what started me on the whole kick of doing this stuff. Uh, There's a little history book that you can find in a lot of the stores. It was written a while ago. Benjamin Franklin came here personally to personally set up the milestones that run the length of South Hall Town. Personally. In some cases, people tell you he got out of the carriage and he dug the hole himself. You know, he he chiseled the stone and set them up. And I looked through the town records and when those milestones went up, Benjamin Franklin had been dead for 30 years. Mm. You know, if you look, he wrote a very detailed autobiography. He never mentioned being here in the years that those stones, you know, coming here to put stones up. So it's like reflected glory. Reflected glory. So that reflected glory makes us more famous for having it, which... Because then we're just one degree of separation from it. Yes. Yes. So it's really us. Yeah. Yes. It's very very interesting. So the milestones themselves were a requirement by New York State for us to set up. And our, our highway supervisors actually set up the stones. And they marked off where the nearest post office was, which this at that point was in Riverhead. Those markers were brand new in 1830-whatever. The milestones were actually referring to the number of miles to get to what was called Suffolk Courthouse, which was where the post office was. And New York State had required that all of the municipalities set up these markers along the postal roads for travelers to know how far it was. So so it was a practical... It had a practical I see, I see. Mm -hmm. But in time, we came up with these stories. Mm -hmm. Now, did Benjamin Franklin actually visit Southhold? Yes, he did. There are actually letters. He apparently came through twice. And he was coming through here to catch a ferry to go to Connecticut to visit a friend of his. And another time, he caught the ferry to go visit his mother. Mm. And he wrote and said to his friend, could you ask that minister in Southhold about the ditches and hedges they have? Because they were very interesting. So he was here, but he didn't set up the milestones. Mm. But he was here, Hmm. you know. It's these assumptions that were made mostly in the 30s and the 1960s to give us that reflected glory. Hmm. It's a problem. I think Americans, because their history is relatively short. And new. And new, as opposed to, I mean, the Brits would not be bothering with with this kind of thing. 200 years is nothing to them. Yeah. So the premium is placed on these historical things because there's not enough history otherwise. I I think we all want to make ourselves greater and better and have pride. Yeah. So sometimes we'll resort to a story to give ourselves pride. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. I could never be a historian. (laughs) But I'm really glad that that you've been talking to me. I have a much better understanding now of, I don't know, what turns you on, I suppose. What is the gratification for you in all of this? What what do you get out of... That's a really crude question. Actually, I've had people ask me that question over and over and over again. So I've had to actually sit down and think about it. Okay, so what is your pat answer that you're going to give me? Do you have a pat answer? (laughs) No, not so much a pat answer. I love local history. I love being able to go down the street and know what was there, who owned it at one point, what, what little stories there are. Because history is a series of stories. I like local history. I like knowing what happened around me. I also like finding out the real story and understanding how things came to happen. You know, why did this house was here? 
what happened with this person. I'm really nosy, so I always want to know what happened. Mm. But I like being nosy about dead people, not so much live people. On the other <laughs> side, I'm just like a gossipy person who wants to know everything's going on with everybody right now. And what, always why, why, why. Yeah, well, see, and I do that with the past. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'd make a great team. There we go. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Hey, thank you very much, Amy. I'll refer to you as South Hole Town Historian, though. Yeah, that's, that's the best of the titles. South Hole Town runs from Laurel out to Fishers Island. Yeah. And in each one of those communities, we have a museum Historical. or historical site that specializes in just their community. I get to do all of it. But when I work for the historical sites, I get to especially you know, concentrate on just that one particular little yeah. area, which is fun, too. Thank you very much, Amy Falk, South Hold Town Historian. Thank you very much, Amy. I look forward to being in touch with you again. You've been listening to Amy Falk talking about her work as South Hold Town's historian. You can hear North Fork Works right here on the first Wednesday of the month at this time and any time at all as podcasts on hazelcon.com. If you've enjoyed this interview and the terrific interviews on WPKN's other programs, please consider supporting our work by making a donation at wpkn.org. Thank you. I'm Hazel Kahn. Music